We are speaking with analyst, former U.S. diplomat and foreign policy advisor to the Senate GOP leadership, Jim Jatras. We will be discussing NATO's expansion into Latin America, and it's great to talk again, Mr. Jatras. Thank you, Hervoya. Very, very pleased to be talking with you. Thank you. Now, I, I wanted to start with an amusing tweet uh, of yours, uh, I guess some days or weeks ago. Uh, you begged the question whether NATO understood that the letters in NATO meant North Atlantic and not some sort of global Atlantic treaty organization or GATO, which means cat. Gato. Yeah, which means <laughs> cat in Spanish. Now, Colombia has been the first to join NATO as a global partner, uh, I believe uh, last year which includes interoperability of armed forces. And they also just joined uh, the NATO's demining network. So we see a clear trend toward integration on many levels. And now we have President Trump saying Brazil can join NATO, while former NATO commander James uh, Stavridis saying that NATO membership is out of the question, but possible in a remote future. He says if NATO were truly going to go gato, as you said, we would first see New Zealand, Australia, and Colombia become a part of NATO before Brazil. Uh, it was also reported that the U.S. would strengthen military ties with Brazil to a level usually reserved for NATO allies, something called major non-NATO ally, uh, something only Argentina has in Latin America. So that's now Colombia, Argentina, Brazil entering the NATO or uh, Gato sphere. What do you make of this move by NATO uh, expanding into Latin America? Well, I think there are a few things that need to be uh, addressed here. One is let's remember that uh, NATO is not truly an alliance in the normal sense of the word, that uh, it, a, a grouping of equal partners for a common defense. After all, countries like uh, Montenegro and Estonia contribute nothing the security of the United States. If you ask that question, people say, oh, what? but they'll send contingents to Afghanistan or they'll participate in this and that. Yes, maybe they come along as fellow travelers for some of our stupider adventures, but it doesn't mean they actually make us any more secure here in the United States. They don't have that capability. They certainly, in the case of the Baltic states, have the capability of making us less secure by increasing the prospects we might get into some kind of confrontation with the Russians. So, Again, we have to understand that NATO is simply an American control mechanism over Europe and to essentially uh, either force or welcome these countries in outsourcing their security and decision-making to people in Washington. It's simply a, a part of an imperial structure. To that extent, whether we're talking about so-called major non-NATO allies, which even ridiculously includes a country like Pakistan, let's say, uh, or whether we're talking about countries that don't have that designation, following the pattern of NATO, we're simply talking about putting other countries under the same kind of uh, outsourcing of their sovereignty and their security policies to Washington. And that's true of an awful lot of countries that don't have that designation or don't even have that kind of formal relationship with the United States. I, I, obviously, the, the key one is Israel in that regard. And we don't have any kind of formal relationship. There's certainly no, no signed alliance with Israel as we do with uh, the, the countries under the Rio Treaty here in the Western Hemisphere, whether it's NATO or formerly had, we had with CENTO and CETO and these uh, defunct alliances from, from the time of the Cold War. Um, I, I think the most uh, important thing to observe here is that this is another measure of how uh, the so-called America First impulse that Trump ran on in 2016 
uh, to put our interests first and our national security first and to get rid of some of these ridiculous foreign commitments has been turned on its head under this administration. That having stalked his administration with uh, Republican administration retreads and neocons and even never Trumpers, uh, that he has simply uh, turned his uh, in total reverse what he promised in terms of his policy, that not only are we continuing to, to expand NATO by admitting Montenegro and soon probably uh, so-called Macedonia or North Macedonia, whatever they're calling it this week, but uh, the idea of now including these countries in Latin America for no particularly good reason, except maybe to carry out an aggression against Venezuela and seize their oil assets. Um, this is, um, it's, it's a very sad commentary on the, the strength and determination of the, the uh, permanent structures in the Washington and their global outreach to not only continue in the same direction, but to even expand further in a way that is not conducive to world peace or to American security. My next question is, um, you know, U.S. military and intelligence connections in Latin America run deep, as we've seen in the countless U.S. coups during the 20th century. I've interviewed Jefferson Morley, who wrote the book on how at least three Mexican presidents were paid CIA agents. What do you make of President Bolsonaro of Brazil making an unprecedented uh, visit to CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia? Uh, it, look, uh, Bolsonaro has been called the Trump of Latin America. It, he, he does sort of fit into that populist mode. There are some things I like about him, but it seems to me that he is willing to play ball with the worst tendencies, not of Trumpism or of America firstism, but of this uh, deepening and uh, and uh, proliferation of the tentacles of, uh, of American global empire. I don't know how that serves Brazil's needs, uh, but... Uh, it, it, it's, I, it, as you say, it's an unprecedented step. It's, uh, you know, look, when we talk about a lot of the ugly things that happened in Latin America, but elsewhere in the world as well, during the Cold War, at least you could say there was a, a worldwide global standoff between the United States and our satellites and the Soviet Union and his satellites. And it was a struggle for world domination that was essentially bipolar. It was, it was a zero-sum game. And there was not much that could be done about that. And, and somebody might say, hey, when you're in that kind of a struggle, some, some nasty things are going to happen. And I understand that. The question is, why are we doing this now? What is the real purpose of this uh, other than to maintain a fading American unipolar uh, moment, uh, this desire to dominate the entire globe that arose in the 1990s? Um, it, it really is, is, is not not in anyone's benefit, but I'm afraid that Bolsonaro is showing himself willing to, to go along with that trajectory. And I wanted to get your take on the Russian connection in the whole U.S.-Venezuela game. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about oil. We have, that's the obvious prize, but whether it's to take the oil or deny it to Washington's adversaries, such as Russia and China, because I believe the U.S. is largely energy independent at the moment. Uh, and then we have the stolen Venezuelan gold, and I think gold will be uh, important in the coming economic reset or transition. But, you know, I, something that a lot of people, I guess, haven't been talking about that piqued my uh, interest, and maybe you can comment on uh, as well, uh, there seems to be some kind of new Cuban missile crisis situation, uh, something Putin recently spoke of in his national uh, address, because in December, Venezuela agreed to allow stationing of Russian military aircraft in Caracas. 
And then one month later, the coup, uh, attempted coup happened in January. And then in Putin's uh, address, address to the nation a little while later, he said he was going to station nuclear submarines in the Atlantic targeting Western, I guess, military facility, facilities as a reciprocal measure of self-defense. And it's interesting that Cuba and Venezuela are one of the only geographical uh, land areas where Russia could station, you know, military aircraft or, or nukes in, in theory as a response to NATO's placement of missiles in Romania and elsewhere. So, I mean, w what are your thoughts uh, on Venezuela? There seem to be multiple layers uh, of what's going on. Well, I think you're right. You're right. There are multiple layers. And again, I, I guess I would tend to draw a distinction between what the, the John Boltons and the Mike Pompeos and the other fixtures of the administration are thinking and what, if anything, the president is thinking. And, uh, and, and I, I, it, it, I think to me, like to a lot of people, how he ended up going in this direction is, is something of a mystery. Was he a flim flam man and a deceiver from the beginning? Is he just an impulsive and unstructured and undisciplined mind who tends to run off in all directions? Uh, is he completely trapped and held hostage by these people? Uh, or is he really playing a four-dimensional chess and he's really in control of the whole situation, as some people still, I think, rather absurdly maintain? Um, I think there's another aspect to it is that somehow he's gotten the idea that running against a socialism democratic socialism and the democratic party somehow dovetails with getting rid of a socialist regime in Venezuela. So somehow there's a domestic political angle to all this. Uh, one thing you didn't mention in your question is the cancellation of the intermediate range nuclear forces agreement in, uh, in Europe. Um, if as is the case now, uh, we now have a situation where missiles in that range from 500 to 5,000 kilometers are now legal, so to speak, uh, for the United States and for Russia, um, if the Russians were to put such missiles in Venezuela, they would cover something like two-thirds to three-quarters of the continental uh, United States, including Washington, D.C., New York, and a lot of other major cities. A lot of what the Russians are doing, if they are stepping into this hemisphere in that regard, is essentially tit-for-tat of what we're doing on their doorstep uh, in, in Europe. Uh, now, we're going to likely see a build. We are already seeing a buildup of forces in Europe. We're seeing more probing by American bombers, B-52s that now are being equipped with uh, nuclear-tipped cruise missiles, that there is a real concern on the Russian side that with very, very little warning time, the United States may be in a position to launch a strike against major Russian cities. I understand that it would be to be expected that they would want to be able to reciprocate that with that with a threat of comparable short to no warning uh, against the United States. And, and Mr. Putin has said that they will reciprocate not just against European targets, but against American targets. What to, to me, all this boils down to, and you hear people, by the way, invoking the Monroe Doctrine and saying, well, we don't want the Russians or for that matter, the Chinese playing in our hemisphere. And, and I completely agree with that. But the uh, quid pro quo for that would be to, to recognize their Monroe doctrines in the South China Sea and the Korean Peninsula with respect to China, with respect to Russia, uh, the, the, the Baltic, the Black Sea, and, and essentially Europe. Um, when they, when uh, President Trump and John Bolton say to the Russians, you get out of our hemisphere, uh, if I were the Russians, my response would be, sure, absolutely. As soon as you get out of Eurasia, starting with Ukraine and Syria. Oh, well, you're not going to do that? Well, then just shut up. 
uh, if they we want to play that game, that it looks like the Russians are our game on their side. I think it's a very, very dangerous thing. But I, I, I really think that they're the ones who are responding to actions already taken by the American side. Just another question on Venezuela. Um, as you're kind of commenting, Trump called for Russia to get out of Venezuela, to which Russia bluntly rejected the demand to leave. Uh, and it seems Russia has learned and strengthened from its Syria experience and is calling America's bluff and seemingly able to handle defense of uh, Venezuela. Where do you see things going in Venezuela? Ultimately, a military conflict, a soft coup, putting color revolutionary Juan Guaido in power or Maduro and the status quo remaining? Well, it seems that plan A was uh, something, a, a soft coup, uh, that basically to appeal to the military to stage some sort of color revolution, the humanitarian aid and, and an incident at the border was supposed to be the, the catalyst for that. It seems that at least for the short term, that has misfired. I don't know if there's much of a prospect for going back to that plan A, whether plan B would be uh, the launching of some kind of a guerrilla war presumably from Colombia, possibly from uh, Venezuela, and then, excuse me, from uh, Brazil. And then Plan C would be a direct military intervention of perhaps of the, uh, the sort uh, we saw in Libya in 2011, or even worse, Iraq 2003. I don't know if the Russians are in a position to do in Venezuela what they did in Syria, just because of the logistics involved. That if at the end, because it would be a direct confrontation with the United States and American forces of the sort that both sides took great pains to avoid during the first Cold War, but about which people seem rather cavalier uh, that could happen with uh, devastating consequences now during this this second Cold War. Uh, And let's also remember, too, that unlike Ukraine, certainly, and also I would say Syria, where Russia does have direct interests, Russia really has no direct national interests in Venezuela, that their intervention there is, uh, I would say, twofold. One is to uh, stand up for what they see, and I agree, are the rules of international conduct. As you know, the American side is always invoking the uh, rules-based international order, uh, appealing to rules that we violate at will and redefine as we see fit, but then accuse other people of violating. I think the Russians and the Chinese and other countries that take state sovereignty and non-interference in internal affairs very, very seriously uh, do do see that there is a an interest in upholding those rules regarding uh, Washington's desire to just keep knocking off regime changes anytime we feel like it. And the other one is, as we've alluded to earlier, is that if we're going to be playing these games and threatening the security on their doorstep, they're going to do the same thing on our doorstep, which is all the more reason, it seems to me, if we want anything like a stable world that a rational group of policymakers in Washington, which unfortunately we don't have, would be saying to Moscow and Beijing, all right, enough of this. Let's come up with an understanding of our respective spheres of influence that you stay out and we'll stay out. And that we each recognize the, the need for a regional security of, of major powers and not to step on their toes in their own vital security sphere. This is something that Washington does not respect but then demands not only to respect our sphere of influence in the Western Hemisphere, but it needs to extend our entire as a sphere of influence over the entire globe. And that, that can only lead to something very, very bad, I think. I had one more question on um, <clears throat> Venezuela, and it's more ideological. 
I've been having tough debates with friends on U.S. regime change in Latin America, including many Latin Americans themselves, uh, including many that are left uh, liberal. You know, I'm certainly no socialist or, or communist, and I'm not a fan of Chavez or the Maduro government. Um, yet at the same time, I'm certainly no neocon or supporter of U.S. regime change or foreign intervention, which kick against the pricks of constitutional U.S. founding principles of liberty and republican democracy. So could you help help me square this circle? You know, if the Maduro government is less than ideal and Washington regime change is less than ideal, I mean, what alternatives uh, exist? Well, I suppose the, the obvious alternative would be Venezuela for the Venezuelans. Let them work it out. Uh, it's not our problem. And, and we have no right to do this. So look, one of the things that we see over and over again with these color revolutions and regime changes is the invocation of the fill-in-the-blank people, the Ukrainian people, the Iraqi people, this people, that people. Um, and we should take our own country as an example. What people of what country are unanimous on any side of the issue? I mean, whoever heard of, I mean, the, the only thing I can liken it to is this kind of Bolshevik notion that there's a, the people all have the same will based on some objective law of history. And then the regime is a, is a separate little entity that can be dispensed with. When in fact, in a country like Venezuela, like Ukraine, like Syria, like the United States, you've got, you know, 40% plus of the people on this side and 40% plus of the people on this side uh, with varying degrees of bitterness and division over what direction their country should follow. Um, the fact that some countries have, virtually all countries have such problems, maybe maybe not the Japanese, but most countries have those kind of divisions is something we should understand and and try to promote to whatever extent we can as a as a as a good neighbor and a friend, uh, reconciliation, but not sharpening of the divisions or declaring half the population to be not the people whose whose will can then be uh, trodden over. You know this is you know it's interesting that they invoke the word democracy all the time. I remember Secretary, former Secretary Tillerson said that uh, what really draws the countries of the Western Hemisphere together is democracy under the Monroe Doctrine. Look, at the time of President Monroe, even Americans would not have described our country as a democracy. They would have rejected such a label. Thomas Jefferson said democracy is simply a license for 51% of the people to oppress the other 49%. Uh, what was the only other independent country in the hemisphere at the time? Haiti. Was Haiti a democracy? Certainly, the Monroe Doctrine has nothing to do with democracy, but people invoke this democratic concept in almost a Bolshevik ideological fashion to justify what they see as the objective laws of history. Again, very, very Bolshevik in its, in its application. So um, I, I don't think either what I, I, I again, I agree with you. I'm not a defender of uh, Maduro or of Chavez, but I certainly don't agree with going around with fire and sword or deception and uh, subversion to overthrow the governments of other countries, however much we may criticize some of its practices. I wanted to touch on um, Mexico. You know, a lot of things are, are happening. We talked about Colombia, Venezuela, Brazil, uh, all uh, moving towards NATO, Russia, Russia, Russian and Chinese presence uh, in Latin America. But, you know, in Mexico, we have a seemingly anti-establishment leftist president, AMLO, in power. Um, do you think events in Mexico have also played a role in helping accelerate uh, America's renewal of the Monroe Doctrine? And just briefly, your thoughts on, you know, there's this talk of a new migrant caravan, uh, the border wall, which I think... Uh, 
they have a billion dollars now in, in funding allocated. So what, what's happening with Mexico in regards to all of this? Uh, I, I don't know how much Mexico figures into the bigger picture, either on the American side or on the Mexican side, to tell the truth. As you point out with the 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 the, the, the allusion to the, uh, the border question and Trump threatening to shut the border now, cutting off aid to El Salvador, um, Honduras, and, uh, and uh, I guess, what was the third country? Nicaragua. No, not Nicaragua. Um, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Uh, that um, the the specific question of migration and the situation on our southern border. I think those local questions, vis-a-vis Mexico and the United States, will be much more important to AMLO's calculations going forward, and also to Washington's calculations than any of the bigger pictures having to do with with uh, the Monroe Doctrine and the Russians and the Chinese and the rest. Of and. This year marks the 70th anniversary of NATO, as well as the 20th anniversary of NATO's bombing of Serbia. Uh, again, I'm no fan of authoritarianism or communism, but you know, given I'm sure NATO has done work in protecting you know the Western world from authoritarianism, but given NATO's wrongful actions everywhere from Operation Gladio to Libya to Serbia, you know, I play around with this term sometimes. As a joke, you know, have they achieved the moniker of North Atlantic terrorist organization? I mean, what are your thoughts on NATO's legacy after 70 years? There, there's a great uh, article by, on the national interest by Colonel Doug McGregor about the zombie NATO, that NATO is not dead. Unfortunately, it's the undead. It's like a zombie that keeps going forward and doing what it always does, uh, mindless and destructive. And unfortunately, that that is NATO. Look, uh, Growing up as a as a kid on an Air Force base in Germany, I was like the original NATO baby. I mean, I grew up in a, in a world where NATO was mom and apple pie and everything right with the world, and everything symbolized by the red flag and the hammer and sickle was like the devil incarnate. Now I look at that NATO star the same way I used to look at that hammer and sickle and the red flag. It's it's simply a destructive uh, bureaucracy that is aggressive, uh, carries out these aggressive attacks on other countries. Obviously, the attack on Serbia in 1999 had nothing to do with democracy or, for that matter, communism. I mean, obviously, Milosevic had come up through the Yugoslav Communist Party, but like all the other post-communist nationalist leaders, you saw whether it was Tujman in in, uh, Croatia and others, he basically was playing the nationalist card, although I think in his case, it was more of a question of opportunism. The only exception I can think of that is... uh, Alia Izabegovic, who was an Islamist, not a not a nationalist, um, and of course we know that as on the same pattern we saw in uh, in Libya and many other countries, the United States, uh, despite all this talk about fighting Islamic terrorism, the global war on terrorism, is actually allied in supporting groups uh, either Al Qaeda or offshoots from Al Qaeda, which again further reinforces this notion of the North Atlantic terrorist organization that there is that longstanding. Uh, symbiosis between Washington and these various jihad groups going all the way back at least to the 1980s in in Afghanistan. So uh, unfortunately, I think that is the pattern and I don't see much chance it is going to change. You know, I try to get um, really pro-NATO people sometimes on the program and it's it's harder to get uh, that kind of folk uh, to talk to uh, as opposed to, you know, people like yourself uh, who who kind of agree with me uh, have a critical approach. My final question is related to Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's recent statement. He said there has been a very nervous reaction 
to Russia's comeback as an equitable partner who does not impose anything on others but does not tolerate dictating or, or ultimatums. Our Western partner's reaction to this is very painful. Uh, and then what he says next for me is kind of you know profound. He says, the gist of what is happening is the categorical reluctance of the United States and its Western allies to agree that the 500-year-long period of Western domination in world affairs is coming to an end, end quotes. And the article continues, and it says, in his opinion, transition to a new multipolar democratic and fair world order will last long, but already now this transition is painful for those who are in the habit of ruling the world for centuries. So there's that statement as well as the talk of the Asian century, they say by next year, uh, in economic terms, uh, you know, we'll already be in the Asian century that's upon us. So what do you make of Lavrov's statement? Uh, I, I, think, I think, first off, Mr. Lavrov is probably the most brilliant statesman we've seen in generations. Uh, I, I, I really, really admire his thinking. I'm not sure I agree with him on that last point. However, after all, when we think of the, the previous stable multinational system that went belly up in 1914, the Russian Empire, along with the German and the French and the Italian and the British, and to some extent the American Empire, was one of those dominant European empires. I'm not sure that as much as Russia is pursuing a Eurasianist course now, that Russia somehow ceases to be European. Of course it's European. So I'm not sure I agree with that, that, uh, that analysis, although there is um, the observation that if there is a new stable multipolar order, it won't just be of European powers. Obviously, China will have a prime place in that. I think India will be very important uh, to some extent, Japan, but not to the importance that it had in, in past decades. Um, if we can come up with a new kind of concert of powers that is similar to the one that existed in the 19th century, but includes now non-European powers, that would be the best path forward. I don't know if that can be achieved peacefully. Again, the, the, the spoiler here is Washington, is that can Washington step down from its aspiration post-1991 to dominate the entire globe and accept the legitimacy of the other rising powers, notably Russia and China? There's this fantasy, by the way, in Washington that Russia is a declining power, and I don't simply, I simply think that is not the case. Um, I, I don't know if the people here are capable of doing that, and everything we've discussed up to this point in the program seems to point in the other direction. They're determined to hang on and dig in deeper at all costs, even at the risk of a major war breaking out, presumably uh, accidentally. I think one of the things we'll see in the near future is to see what happens right now in Ukraine, for example, that we just had uh, a first round of an election yesterday. Mr. Zelensky came in first. I, I'm convinced, I, I'm sure many other people, that uh, Poroshenko stole second place from Temoshenko. Let's see whether she takes that lying down. Um, the, the extent to which Washington is continued to go for broke, including hanging on to Ukraine at all costs and making it as a base for threatening Russia's security, I think will, be, will tell a, lot, a large part of the tale whether that transition can be made peacefully from a failed aspiring unipolar world into a stable understanding of a multipolar world, which, as I say, has got to be based on an understanding of spheres of influence. All right. You know, I love talking to Jim Jatras because he gives a very frank but also grounded perspective on, on world events. Uh, you're also a prolific commentator on Twitter, and people can find you at Jim Jatras uh, on Twitter. Uh, 
unless they you know shadow ban you or, or terminate your account. And you also post a lot of your links to your numerous interviews there to news media. Uh, anything else you want to mention before we let you go? No, I think that pretty well covers it. And uh, I, I thank you for the opportunity. And uh, I hope to be with you again sometime soon. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.